stand together for the reading of God's Word. I'll be reading Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 47 today. Please listen carefully, because this is God's holy and infallible Word. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven, as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak with other tongues, as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused, because everyone heard them speak in his own language. Then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all these who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. So they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, Whatever could this mean? Others mocking said, They are full of new wine. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. For these are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out of my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and on my maidservants I will pour out my spirit in those days. And they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire, fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. For David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover my flesh also will rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him 
that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God, And having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He poured out this which you now see and hear. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Lord. And Christ. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you. And to your children, and to all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And with many other words he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Amen. 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 Please be seated. So we'll be looking at verses 37 through 41 today, the third section of Peter's sermon here on this great day, the first Pentecost of the church age. About today's text, Matthew Henry says this, We have seen the wonderful effect of the pouring out of the Spirit and its influence upon the preachers of the gospel. Peter, in all his life, never spoke at the rate that he had done now with such fullness, perspicuity, and power. We are now to see another blessed fruit of the pouring out of the Spirit in its influence upon the hearers of the gospel. From the first delivery of that divine message, it appeared that there was a divine power going along with it, and it was mighty through God to do wonders. Thousands were immediately brought by it to the obedience of faith. It was the rod of God's strength sent out of Zion, Psalm 110, 2 and 3. We have here the first fruits of that vast harvest of souls, which by it were gathered in to Jesus Christ. Come and see in these verses the exalted Redeemer riding forth. 
in these chariots of salvation, conquering and to conquer. So, as we move into the third part of Peter's sermon, let's remember that the Spirit had been poured out upon the apostles and disciples and it had drawn a great number of people there to see what was going on. And so, Peter answers their question and he tells them what's happening, that this is Joel being fulfilled, this prophecy, that they are in the last days and the the great and awesome day of the Lord is coming and that God was going to give great ability by His Spirit for the going forth of His Word through all people, of all kinds of people. And that that's what they were seeing. And that wonders were going to be seen in the heavens and in the earth. And this brings forth the idea of judgment that was coming. He teaches them this. But there's hope at the end. He says, all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And then they move into this great name that they need to call upon when Peter takes them through Christ's life and His death and His resurrection and His exaltation. And he ends it up by saying, Jesus Christ, whom you crucified, is both Lord and Christ. And so, He's brought this to them. The Holy Spirit has anointed the preaching of the Word. They've heard it. And it has taken its place in their minds and in their hearts. And then we see what happens. And today's text will look at the response of the people. And then Peter tells them the answer to their question to repent and let every one of you be baptized and you shall receive the gift of the Spirit. There will be forgiveness of sins. There will be all the blessings that come with being united to Christ by the Spirit. He goes on to tell them to whom the promise is given. And then he finishes up his sermon by pointing them to a life of ethical renewal. A life life of righteousness. A life of turning away from this perverse generation that was going to be destroyed. And then we see the outcome of God's work numerically at this time. 3,000 souls added to the church on that first day of Pentecost. And then as usual, some questions to try to learn uh, what these scriptures mean for us today in our lives today. So verse 37, response of the people. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? So they were cut to the heart when they heard Peter's clear teaching about the life, the death, the resurrection, the ascension, and the exaltation, and the current power of Jesus Christ on display, and their own guilt in crucifying their Lord and Christ, they were deeply convicted of their own sin of their own part in murdering this great man approved by God, Jesus. This internal experience is described here as being cut to the heart. You see, for you and me and for them, conviction of sin goes deep and it hurts. Bach says the crowd is deeply impressed by Peter's words. Indeed, they are cut to the heart. This expression appears only here in the New Testament and the same is true of the verb that's used here. The verb refers to a sharp pain or a stab often associated with emotion. The ESV says acutely distressed. The NET says pierced to the heart. The Holman Study Bible says convicted them deeply. The King James Version says, pricked in their heart. 
Luke's remark about the heart shows the sincerity and depth of the audience's response. Matthew Henry puts it this way, it put them in pain. These were pricked to the heart with indignation at themselves for having been accessory to the death of Christ. Peter, charging it upon them, awakened their consciences, touched them to the quick, and the reflection they now made upon it was as a sword in their bones. It pierced them as they had pierced Christ. Note, sinners, when their eyes are opened, cannot but be pricked to the heart for sin, cannot but experience an inward uneasiness. This is having the heart rent, as Joel 2.13 says. This is a broken and contrite heart, as Psalm 51.17 says. Those that are truly sorry for their sins and ashamed of them and afraid of the consequences of them, these are those who are pricked to the heart. A prick in the heart is mortal. And under those commotions, says Paul, I died. Romans 7, 9. All my good opinion of myself and confidence in myself failed me. Second Corinthians, Paul writes about this in chapter 7. For even if I made you sorry with my letter, I do not regret it, though I, I did regret it. For I perceive that the same epistle made you sorry, though only for a while. Now, I rejoice not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. For observe this very thing, that you sorrowed in a godly manner. What diligence it produced in you, what clearing of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what vehement desire, what zeal, what vindication in all things, you proved yourselves to be clear in this matter. It's the kind of thing that's happening in the hearts and the minds of those who've been listening to Peter's sermon when they realize that they are rightly indicted for being accessories to the murder of God's Christ. And this internal, painful, internal piercing brought to the heart by the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit accompanying truth always, always goes on to repentance. So it starts on the inside, but it cannot stay there. The text tells us when they heard this, it's, it's noteworthy that this is not just a few people here and there in the crowd. The response is the response of the assembled people together. While there may have been some who were not convicted of their sin, the impression of an observer here would have been to see the entire crowd Repenting together as one. Think about that. God's spirit was working on this crowd. Unlike the evil crowds that cried for Christ's crucifixion, this crowd was under the almighty divine power of God against whom none can stand. 
Fox says Luke's remark about the heart shows the sincerity and the depth of the audience response. And heart is a distributive singular. So each heart is in view here. The heart of the people. Each heart. They were cut. I want us to note here that we're probably not expecting something like this to happen most days of our lives, or really any day of our lives. And I would ask us why. Why do we not trust God to be able to do this? Why do we not trust God that He may do this again? We should pray with anticipation. God's power is greater than stubborn, sinful hearts. Next. Men and brethren is the phrase they use when they say, men and brethren, what shall we do? Note the tenderness. Their softened hearts show up here on their tongues as they begin to reply. Brethren, the crowd refers respectfully and lovingly to the apostles and disciples as brothers. The crowd seeks counsel from those who brought the message of conviction to them. They don't leave and go somewhere else. They are tender and curious towards the very one who brought them the message. Matthew Henry says, they call them men and brethren as Peter had called them. So they return the favor. Peter had called them men and brethren and they call them men and brethren back. It is a style of friendship and love rather than a title of honor. You are men. Look upon us with humanity. You are brethren. Look upon us with brotherly love. Note, ministers are spiritual physicians. They should be advised with by those whose consciences are wounded. And it is good for people to be free and familiar with those ministers as men and their brethren who deal for their souls as for their own. The question they ask is a very simple question. What shall we do? The heart cut by God's word and God's spirit opens the mind to consider sin rightly. And it leads to this urgent awareness that something has to change now. Right now. The convicted know something must be done immediately. This is another mark of real Holy Spirit conviction. The convicted tremble under the weight of their own burden of sin and they long for help. They they look outside of themselves for help. They are granted a trust towards the one that has brought the word to them and the one that has brought the word to them, they look to and they say, what shall we do? Delay is intolerable for the soul under the terror of God's judgment. Matthew Henry says, they speak as men that did not know what to do. In a perfect surprise, is that Jesus whom we have crucified, both Lord and Christ? Then what will become of us who crucified Him? We are all undone. Note, no way of being happy, but by seeing ourselves miserable. When we find ourselves in danger, 
of being lost forever, there is hope of our being saved forever. And not until then. They speak as men that were resolved to do anything they should be directed to do immediately. They are not for taking time to consider. They are not for adjourning the prosecution of their convictions to a more convenient season, but desire now to be told what they must do to escape the misery that they were liable to. Note, those that are convinced of sin would gladly know the way to peace and to pardon. We see this in future verses that we'll look at as we go through the book of Acts. Acts chapter 9, 6 and Acts chapter 16, verse 30. So he gives them their answer. He says, Repent and let every one of you be baptized. He gives them the answer. They want something to do. He gives them something to do right now. Then Peter said to them, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. Peter hears the plea from the people. They are looking to him for the way out of their predicament. He's not silent. He doesn't fall away. He tells them the commandment of God. His boldness persists in this moment. Neither does the preacher delay when those who are looking for deliverance ask for the way out. He has given them the summary of his sermon in verse 36. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. That's the summary of his sermon. And now he gives them the application that they request. Okay, we hear this. We accept it as true. What do we do now? I want us to see here that Peter waited upon the Holy Spirit to work in the hearts of his hearers. Evangelism preaches truth. And we do this as evangelists. We present the truth most simply of who Jesus is and what he has done and the guilt of the person before Jesus Christ. There's the two parts of evangelism. Who Jesus is and how you crucified him. And then waits and rests upon the inner work of God in the hearer. Not upon their own personal powers of persuasion. This is not Arminianism. This is trusting in the sovereign work of God who alone calls individuals to salvation in their hearts. We bring the truth of who Jesus is. We call out that men are guilty, everyone without except, exception. And we pray for God. We fervently pray for God to grant their souls to accept this truth and find themselves in this same moment of panic and being undone that the men of Israel were on this first great day of Pentecost. So what does he tell them to do? Repent. Simple. Turn away from sin and to turn instead towards God. At its heart, repentance is a turning away from sin and a turning towards God. The Jews must confess their sin of participating in Christ's murder. 
Their participation in Christ's murder was their public expression of commitment to the false system of lies that they had been trapped in, that they'd been given over to. It was their public baptism. They must confess their sin of following false teaching from apostate church leaders. They had chosen their leaders. They had chosen their system. They had believed in a false system and they had to reject it. They must turn away from that false system and instead turn to Christ and to follow His Word, to follow His way. And this would start with a public water baptism in the name of Jesus Christ, whereby they publicly declare, me and my household, my wife, my children, we belong to this Christ, not to this false system. Bach says, Peter states that the proper response to his message is to repent. The exhortation is expressed as an imperative. Repentance indicates a turning in direction. In this context, it means to make a conscious turn toward God and God's actions through Jesus. This verb appears five times in the book of Acts, and we'll see it as we go through Acts. It's one of Luke's favorite terms to describe how one should respond to the offer of forgiveness, and he often connects it to forgiveness. Peter's declaration here is obedient to Jesus' commission and call in Luke 24. He's preaching exactly what he was called to to preach. Peter's telling his audience to change direction from the attitudes that led them to crucify Jesus and look to God through Jesus for forgiveness. In some texts in the New Testament, this act is said to be also part of the gift of God. The repentance is a part of the gift of God. So repentance and faith are two sides of the same coin. Repentance stresses the starting point of the need for forgiveness, whereas faith is the resulting trust and understanding that this forgiveness comes from God, the one turned to for the gift. So they've seen their sin. They've seen what they've done. They've seen who they are. They've seen the judgment that they deserve, and they hate it. And they're turning away from it, and as they're turning away from it, they say, How do we get free? And this is where faith comes. They must look to Jesus Christ. And this is where the expression of faith first reveals itself for Christians is in baptism. Let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Turn away from that old system. Be marked out now as being brought into the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the immediate first step of obedience to turn away from the apostate Jewish leaders is to embrace the sign of the new covenant, water baptism, and to receive water baptism in the name of Jesus Christ. This will be a public way of identifying with Jesus Christ, this man that they now understand who he is, and separating from lost Jewish leaders the ones leading that perverse generation that they'll be later called to be saved from. Matthew Henry says about this, be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ. That is, firmly believe the doctrine of Christ and submit to his grace and government and make an open, solemn profession of this and come under an engagement to abide by it. 
by submitting to the ordinance of baptism. Be proselyted to Christ and to his holy religion and renounce your infidelity. What about this phrase, every one of you? Peter adds this in. He says, every one of you be baptized. While prior near context points to men and brethren as the target of this phrase, subsequent near context that we'll look at suggests this phrase is broader than just men and brethren. What's the phrase that's coming? The promise is to you and to your children. So Peter is calling for every type of person present to be baptized. Matthew Henry says, This is pressed upon each particular person, every one of you, even those of you that have been the greatest sinners, if they repent and believe, are welcomed to be baptized. So this call to repentance and to be baptized is for every kind of sinner. It doesn't matter what you've done. Come and be cleansed. Going on with Henry. And those who think they have been the greatest saints have yet need to repent and believe and be baptized. There is grace enough in Christ for every one of you, be you ever so many, and grace suited to the case of each one. Israel of old were baptized unto Moses in the camp, the whole body of the Israelites together, when they passed through the cloud and the sea. 1 Corinthians 10, verses 1 and 2. For the covenant of peculiarity was national. But now, every one of you distinctly must be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus and transact for himself in this great affair. So what happens with repentance and with being baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ? Remission of sins. For the remission of sins. This is exactly right from Luke 24, what we saw. That they would go forth and preach repentance in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and remission of sins in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he's doing. So no longer are they to rely upon the old covenant dispensation for the forgiveness of sins. These Jews are now to look to Christ's death upon the cross for their atonement, for their forgiveness, for their cleansing. They're to look to Jesus, not to the temple anymore. The Lamb of God has come. The temple sacrifices are now unnecessary. The first promised attendant gift that Peter points to, the first one, of repentance and baptism in the name of Christ is this remission of sins. This washing away of our sins. Any of us who have been in the faith for any time will know that there's nothing sweeter than being delivered from our sins. Any of us who have been walking with Christ for any period of time, one of our greatest, if perhaps not our greatest longing, is to be set free from this body of death that is within us. The greatest gift is cleansing from our sins in Jesus. And he wants them to know this when he's preaching to them. He wants them to come into the remission of sins that is theirs. Yes, you killed Jesus. You're forgiven. The guilt is washed away. Henry says, It shall be for the remission of sins. Repent of your sin, and it shall not be your ruin. Be baptized into the faith of Christ, and in truth you shall be justified, which you could never be by the law of Moses. Aim at this, 
and depend upon Christ for it, and this you shall have. As the cup in the Lord's Supper is the New Testament in the blood of Christ for the remission of sins, so baptism is in the name of Christ for the remission of sins. You see this? When God brings us into the kingdom and every time we enjoy the Lord's Supper, both the sacraments point to the remission of sins. Matthew Henry says, Be washed, and you shall be washed. (laughs) That's how it ends, that quote. There's more, though. It's not just the remission of sins. He goes on and he says, You shall receive the gift of the Spirit. Verse 38b, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Think about these men of Israel, what they're learning here. They can be forgiven. Wow. They'd observed the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and now they understand this is the work of Jesus, who is both Lord and Christ. It's dawning on them. God's teaching them what they're seeing Jesus is doing. And they understand that they murdered him. They get that, and it's come down upon them. It's crushed their souls. Could even they be the recipients of this Holy Spirit that they're seeing? Can't you see how they might think, well, okay, maybe I can be forgiven, but I'm going to be left outside. You guys will get to eat at the table. I'm going to get left outside. There's no second-class Christians Perhaps they may be only able to escape his wrath, they might be thinking, but not be included in the full enjoyment of all the blessings that attend with salvation. Can I really be made from an enemy to a son? That's what he's teaching them. And they need to grip this. They need to understand the fullness of what they've been brought into and what Jesus Christ has done for them. See, Peter wants them to know how far Christ's grace extends, and we all struggle with it. We all need to know how far Christ's grace extends to us. Bach says the second key element in the gospel is the gift that is the Spirit already bestowed on those who have followed Jesus, but now available as the sign of the new era to anyone who turns to embrace the call of God made through Jesus. In Acts 2.17, this is called the outpouring of the Spirit without discrimination. The Spirit falls on those who call on the name of the Lord for deliverance. At the core of the gospel is the offer of the gift of the Spirit and what the Spirit provides to the one who believes. All four references to a gift in Acts are to the giving of the Holy Spirit to those who respond to the preaching of the church. In the Spirit is the enablement enablement for new life and for sharing the new message as Acts 2 itself has shown us. The varying way in which the Spirit is distributed, especially on occasions without baptism, in Acts 10, Luke 24, and Acts 3, Acts 26, where forgiveness is mentioned without baptism, indicates to us how spirit baptism signifies primarily the Spirit's washing and consequent presence. Rather than representing an emphasis on tongue speaking as a required evidence of salvation, or a second gift of salvation. In other words, one is baptized in the Spirit so that new life can come and flow forth from our cleansing. 
Matthew Henry says, Note, all that receive the remission of sins receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. And he puts it this way. All that are justified are sanctified. So who gets this promise? Peter needs to reassure these Jews that they indeed are legitimate recipients of what he has just told them. It's an astounding reality he's calling them into. More than they can really ever get their minds around. Any of us can get our minds around the greatness of the salvation for us enemies of God. So he needs to tell them the foundation. He says, for the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are far off as many as the Lord our God will call. What is the promise? Peter refers to the Holy Spirit here as the promise, again, like he had done in verse 33, remember? Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see in here. So the immediate application of this word here, the promise, is to the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is to you and to your children. But because the Holy Spirit unites us with Christ... And all the blessings of salvation, forgiveness, cleansing, power, peace, fruit of the Spirit, etc. Everything in salvation is ours through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Because of this, we can say the promise mentioned here also points to salvation in all its fullness. The fullness of salvation is contained in this word. These two words. The promise. So is the promise too. Is it just to the Jews? Is it just to the adults? Is it just to a certain type of people? He says to you and to your children. The promise of salvation is to the men and to their households. So baptism comes as the sign of the new covenant to Christian Households. Matthew Henry says, Your children shall still have, as they have had, an interest in the covenant and a title to the external seal of it. Come over to Christ to receive those inestimable, inestimable benefits. For the promise of the remission of sins and the gift of the Holy Ghost is to you and to your children. It was very express, Isaiah 44.3. I will pour my spirit upon thy seed. And Isaiah 59.21. My spirit and my word shall not depart from thy seed and thy seed's seed. When God took Abraham into covenant, he said, I will be a God to thee and to thy seed. And accordingly, every Israelite had his son circumcised at eight days old. Now, it is proper for an Israelite when he is by baptism to come into a new dispensation of this covenant to ask, what must be done with my children? Must they be thrown out or taken in with me? Taken in, says Peter, by all means. For the promise 
that great promise of God's being to you a God is as much to you and to your children now as ever it was. So Peter wants all of these Jews to understand that the promises of the old covenant are not being reduced in the new covenant. Not at all. They're being expanded. Not just to your little baby boys, but also your little baby girls. But it's more than that. It's not just the Jews. There's a whole other consideration here. He says, and to all who are afar off. To all who are afar off. Christ is the king of the globe. The gospel is no longer limited to the Jews, but will extend to the entire world. He is the second Adam, and he has been given dominion and power over the entire globe, just like Adam was to begin with. Matthew Henry says, Though the promise is still extended to your children as it has been, yet it is not as it had been confined to you and them. But the benefit of it is designed for all that are far off. We may add, and their children. For the blessing of Abraham comes upon the Gentiles through Jesus Christ. Galatians 3.14 The promise had long pertained to the Israelites, but now it is sent to those that are afar off, the remotest nations of the Gentiles, and every one of them too, all that are afar off. When the tomb was emptied and Christ came forth alive, A new day began for the entire cosmos. There's a limiting statement here. We are not universalists. Peter says, to finish off this section, as many as the Lord our God will call. Apostasy happens. Some baptized children grow up and reject Jesus Christ. Apostasy happens. We go into nations to preach the word of God. Not every household comes to Christ. See, not all who hear the gospel will be saved. Not all will be washed by the Holy Spirit and granted the remission of sin. Only those whom the Lord our God will call shall come to repentance, faith, and baptism by the Holy Spirit. Only those whom God calls So Peter, if you think about it, is instructing those men even at that moment that their conviction, their repentance, their desire to get free of this, their calling, their experiencing away from that, that repentance, it's all a gift to them of God. They're learning that at that moment too. Matthew Henry says, to this general, the following limitation must refer. So we'd seen the expansive nature to you and to your children and to those who are far off, the whole world. But there's a limitation. To this general, the following limitation must refer even as many of them, as many particular persons in each nation, as the Lord our God shall call effectually into the fellowship of Jesus Christ. Note, God can make his call to reach those that are ever so far off, and none come but those whom he calls. So he's given them the instruction. He's told them what to do and why to do it and to whom these promises apply. And he's given them the answer to their question. What shall we do? But he goes on 
And he gives them even further answer. And with many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Peter continues with his preaching, now moving into the ethical outcome of being born again from above. Discipleship always includes going on from evangelism to instruction in God's righteousness, to warnings against worldliness, to a call to sanctification and separation from the lies and the filth of the world around you, no matter the cost. He warns them in strong language, be saved from this perverse generation. I've asked you from this pulpit before, do you think that generation was all that much more perverse than our generation? I don't, I think maybe ours is worse. I don't know. I don't have great hope that ours is not perverse. I think we need to be saved from our perverse generation as well. Matthew Henry says, those that repent of their sins and give up themselves to Jesus Christ must evidence their sincerity by breaking off all intimate society with wicked people. Depart from me, ye evildoers, is the language of one that determines to keep the commandments of his God. Psalm 119, verse 115. Do you hear that? I'll read it again. Depart from me, ye evildoers, is the language of one that determines to keep the commandments of his God. That was David. Which denotes avoiding them with dread and holy fear as we would save ourselves from an enemy that seeks to destroy us or from a house infected with the plague. Box says, the warning about the fate of this generation alludes back to the mention of the day of the Lord and the judgment that comes at the end. The forgiveness that Peter's hearers would obtain by turning to Jesus will also deliver them from this judgment. This shows the spiritual dimension of the Messiah's work. The reference to a twisted generation appears only here in the New Testament and alludes to a generation that is ethically crooked, spiritually off the path to God and thus subject to judgment. With an ethical force, it refers to social and ethical misconduct which is rooted in ungodliness and unbelief. Peter urges his audience to experience salvation and deliverance from the coming judgment. So this theme of a perverse and twisted generations being set before them and the deliverance from it that comes from confession of sin, repentance and walking in newness of life and separating from worldliness and ungodliness is a theme for us as well. It's a theme for us as well. What happens next? Baptisms and souls added. We're going to get a little taste of that today, aren't we? Amen. <laughs> Baptisms and souls added. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. See the conqueror riding forth in glory. That's what's happening. See the immediate outcome of God's work. When God moves, the church grows. Numerically and spiritually. The church grows in every way when God moves. Matthew Henry says, 
Hereby there were added to the disciples to the number of about 3,000 souls that same day. All those that had received the Holy Ghost had their tongues at work to preach and their hands at work to baptize. For it was time to be busy when such a harvest was to be gathered in. The conversion of these 3,000 with these words was a greater work than the feeding of four or 5,000 with a few loaves. Now Israel began to multiply after the death of our Joseph. They are said to be 3,000 souls, which word is generally used for persons when women and children are included with, with men, which intimates that those that were here baptized were not so many men, but so many heads of families as with their children and servants baptized might make up 3,000 souls. These were added to them. Note, those who are joined to Christ are added to the disciples of Christ and join with them. When we take God, when we take God for our God, we must take His people to be our people. So, a few questions by way of application. Do you trust in the power of God's Word or do you trust in your own powers of persuasion? Where do you place your trust in your evangelistic efforts? Perhaps this is a way to answer the question for yourself. Are you more fervent in your knowledge and your study of the Word of God so that you can share it with the lost? Or are you more fervent during preaching to the lost? Where are you most fervent? Often our fervency with our words is a sign that we're trusting in ourselves. Where is the fire hottest as words leave your mouth? When you're before God or before others? Another way of asking this question is, did Peter need to coax them into repentance? You saw the message that he preached. I mean, I can't wait to meet Peter and, and to get to know Peter. But we, when you look at what he preached, it was very clear, very simple reality, step by step, about Jesus Christ with a very simple phrase, whom you crucified. He didn't coax them into repentance. He told them the truth about God and about themselves. And he waited to see what God would do. Another question. Do you trust in the power of God's Holy Spirit or in your own powers of persuasion? So we're called to trust the Word and the Spirit to do the divine work in others. We can't. And if we try to, it will be off-putting. It's prideful. <clears throat> Another way of asking that question perhaps is, are you more fervent in your prayers for the lost or during your preaching to the lost? And it doesn't necessarily have to even include the lost. Right? Anytime you're making an effort to bring spiritual growth into the lives around you. What are you trusting? Whom 
Who are you trusting? Here's another question. A person moving toward repentance, are they hard to spot? If today's text can be an accurate general guide, then a tenderness and respectfulness develops towards the messenger of grace. You will notice, remember, men and brethren is how they addressed Peter and the apostles. You will notice if you were having an opportunity to converse in God's Word and the words that you're bringing have the impact of conviction in their lives, if it's godly sorrow, then a tenderness and respectfulness develops towards the messenger of grace. So I think we could say that it's not hard to spot when someone is softening towards the gospel. Another question, do you rush to call for repentance Getting out of step with the Spirit. So as an evangelist, or as someone who's involved in discipleship and helping others to grow in Christ, we present the truth of God along with the truth about the person that we observe. That's evangelism. That's discipleship. And we point to the disconnect in loving kindness and helping one another grow. But if you go right on and say, and you need to repent, then you may be out of step with the Spirit. Because maybe they don't agree with you. Maybe they don't see the truth the way that you see it. Maybe you haven't presented it accurately. So we have to be patient and not get out in front of the Spirit of God. Give the truth time to work. We're not afraid to call for repentance. We want to be wise to the timing of calling for repentance in a situation where we're not sure if the Holy Spirit is at work. Is it wrong to call for repentance if you don't see signs of the Holy Spirit at work? I wouldn't say it's wrong, no. We may miss signs of God working in people's souls. From this pulpit here, I can't tell what's going on inside of each of your minds and hearts right now. So it's reasonable and good for me to call you to repent. And in whatever ways God has convicted you of your sin, for you to turn away from it and to turn to Him instead. What are we to call people to? What are we called to personally, individually, as Christians? Well, the answer is full repentance. We are called to a life of full repentance. And this is simple to explain, but it needs to be thoroughgoing all the days of our lives. We're called to be under the Word of God and the conviction of the Spirit through the diligent use of the means of grace that God gives to us in our lives and to immediately confess our sins to Him and to repent as He guides us out of our sin. And we can expect the joy of the forgiveness of sins to be our daily reward, and we can expect the enablement and the power of the Holy Spirit in us to be our daily pleasant experience as we walk with God in this earth. We are not called to compromise with this world. We are not called to negotiate with our sin. We are called to experience the full victory of the Lord Jesus Christ over sin, death, and hell over the devil, 
the world, and our flesh. That's what we're called to walk in. <clears throat> Next. When you look at today's text, and you think through this text, do you see that this is really the first New, text, New Testament text that clearly demonstrates the transition from circumcision to baptism as the initiating sign of the covenant? Do you see that? So this, this text, we're going to be referring back to it because the message in the book of Acts about baptism comes to us when it's all said and done as one clear message of covenant household baptism. And so that's the next question. Do you see how this text sets the stage for our understanding of covenant household baptism, which is to include our children as circumcision did in the old covenant? And it will be something that we are brought to again and again by the author, by Luke, in the book of Acts. Finally, do you see that all true repentance leads to a life of holiness? And um, you're not ashamed <clears throat> to call a generation a perverse generation. And you're not given over to the fear of men such that you care about how many friends you have. Because we've got one friend, and he will never leave us or forsake us. Let us pray. Almighty and gracious Heavenly Father, we praise you and we thank you that you have granted to us from heaven the conviction of our sin, that you've led us in repentance, that you've brought us to baptism that You've granted the joy of the forgiveness of sin and the power of Your Spirit and the sweetness of Your Word to us day in and day out. Oh God, we are empty without You. In our flesh, we are miserable. And we praise You that You never leave us or forsake us and that You always take us along the paths of righteousness for Your name's sake. Oh, keep us close, we pray, Father. Keep us close. Grant us your spirit and your word in power in our lives, in our relationships with others. Bless us, we pray, O oh God, to be the observers of the outpouring of your Holy Spirit in this way. Bless us to be the observers that as we speak your word, you take it by your spirit and you bring conviction of sin. And that we would enjoy being those evangelists who observe you converting the lost. Bless us to this end, we pray, O oh God, not only within our homes and our friendships, Lord God, but throughout all of our engagement with the people of this world. That the message of salvation would go forth in clarity from our lips as we speak of Christ and His glory and the need for sinners to be saved. In Jesus' name, amen.